reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. morning. It is great to be back in St. Dominic's uh, to see a relatively full church uh, to worship with you. I've always loved uh, coming, uh, the opportunities I've had to preach here, to worship here, to celebrate here. The fact is, this is one of my favorite religious buildings in the world. Uh, I often, when I have visitors from out of town, give them a, a one-day tour of the city, and always I take them to see three churches. I tell them we're going to the oldest church in the city, the newest church in the city, and the most beautiful church in the city. And I take him to the mission, I take him to the cathedral, and I bring him here to St. Dominic. So I really do love this building. And it's not just the building, but we do religion pretty well here, don't we, huh? We do religion at St. At Dominic's. I mean, you think about the, uh, this glorious edifice, the beautiful stained glass, the great sculptures, and the various altars and shrines around the church, the beautiful artwork, the carvings on the, uh, of the wood on the confessional doors, the statues, the beautiful, beautiful altar, the focus of our worship, the, the magnificent organ music that, that encourages us to lift our voices and sing in praise to God, the processions, huh? the novenas. Yesterday, 2,000 or more people walked across the city from all Hallows, All Hallows Chapel to this place and, and joined us for the afternoon mass and celebration of, of St. Jude as part of the St. Jude Novena. We do religion well here, don't we? Huh? We do religion so well at St. Dominic's. But ultimately, what does it mean to do religion? What is religion? 
have to do with God? I think that the gospel reading today from the 18th chapter of Luke actually gives us the opportunity to reflect on those questions. What does it mean to do religion? What is religion? And what does it have to do with God? First, some background. Uh, the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities of his day, especially typified by the Pharisees, but also including the scribes and the doctors of the law, this is in all four Gospels. But in Luke's Gospel, it forms a major undercurrent through the entire ministry of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Starting with John the Baptist, the Pharisees are hypercritical of Jesus, of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry. But also throughout Luke's gospel, we get a direct comparison between two groups of men, two groups of people. The Pharisees on the one hand, and the other is tax collectors. Again, mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and John, but really a major underlying theme in Luke's gospel. They're beginning with the, the preaching of John the Baptist in chapter 3, going all through Jesus' ministry. The the, the tax collectors respond positively to the preaching of the gospel. Tax collectors hear the word of God and respond to it positively. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are hypercritical of John the Baptist, Jesus, and yes, even the tax collectors all through the gospel of Luke. The Pharisees who were the super-religious, uh, hyper-religious super-Jews of the day, the ones who did everything right, who interpreted the law for themselves and everybody else in Israel, and tax collectors who were outcast and considered non-Jews because of their cooperation with the oppressing and, uh, and occupying forces of the Roman Empire. So this comparison goes to the whole gospel, but comes to a direct comparison in the reading that we have today from Luke chapter 18, where Jesus says, okay, let's put it all on the table now. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's a story about two religious men. Hmm. Don't usually consider the word religious when thinking about tax collectors, do we, Jesus? But Jesus, says, Jesus tells us they're both religious men. How do we know that? Because both of them went up to the temple to pray. Religious people went up to the temple to pray. But that's where the similarity ends. From there on, it becomes a real contrast in the way these two men do religion, the way they practice their religion. It becomes an explicit comparison. We're told that the tax collector, the outcast, the non-Jew, we're told four things about him, that he, won't, he, he stood afar off, he would not raise his eyes. He beat his breast. All of these symbols of remarkable humility. And then he begged God for forgiveness. His religion is typified by a humility that recognizes his need for the healing of God. A religion that doesn't pay attention to what's going on around him with other people, but only seeks the help of God and opens him up in vulnerability to God in such a way that he might also be open in vulnerability to other people. The Pharisee, on the other hand, 
has kind of a twisted religion. Perhaps the most telling line from Jesus' description of the religion of the Pharisee is that he prays to himself. He prays to himself. And his prayer is entirely self-centered, entirely self-focused, entirely external. He thanks God that he is not like other people. It's all about comparison. I thank you, God, that I am so much better than everybody else. And especially I'm better than this Pharisee over here, the only other person in the room as far as we know. I'm so glad I'm not like that other guy over there. And then he congratulates himself on his other religious practices. Besides prayer, he fasts and tithes. He's made himself God. He's focused entirely, arrogantly on himself. He lifts his eyes to God and stands up straight as though he thinks he and God are equals. And the arrogance, the twisted prayer, shows us that he's not really concerned about his relationship with God. All he's concerned with is how he looks in the view of other people. It'll be no surprise to any reader of Luke's gospel that Jesus tells us that it's the outcast non-Jew who goes away justified and not the hyper-religious super-Jew. Because one humbles himself so that God can lift him up and the other lifts himself up in ignorance of God, not paying attention to God at all. The prayer of the publican reaches the ear, the prayer of the tax collector reaches the ear of God. God who hears the cry of the poor and the oppressed, we're told in our first reading. God hears that prayer. We question whether the prayer of the Pharisee even gets beyond the roof of the temple, beyond the ceiling. It goes nowhere and profits him for nothing. The publican is far from perfect, but he recognizes his needs for God, and his religion is rooted in that absolute need for God. A humble supplication, dear Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. The Pharisee presents himself as perfect and destroys the possibility of connecting himself to God. He destroys the possibility of connecting himself to other people. The word religion and the word ligament have a common uh, linguistic root. The L-I-G portion of those two words is from the same Latin root, and it means connection. It means binding together. A ligament is, is connective tissue in the human body that connects uh, muscles to bones and bones to muscle. Ligaments are connecting tissues in the body. Well, religion is supposed to be connecting tissue in the body of Christ, huh? It's supposed to be something that connects us to each other and binds the body together as one and binds us to our head, who is Jesus. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. The connective tissue of the body of Christ is supposed to be what our religion is all about. Religion that is corrupt and twisted, like the practice of the Pharisee in the story, bears fruit in judgment, condemnation, comparison, division, constantly looking at the other and making sure that I'm just doing just one bit better than the guy next to me, and as long as I'm ahead of him, I'm doing okay. A religion that is pure, that's born of humility and the recognition of our need for God's forgiveness and mercy, that religion bears fruit in love, compassion, and unity. 
the Apostle James says, a religion that is pure and undefiled is this, that we care for widows and, their, widows and orphans and their affliction. Immediately we see that it's all about our connection to each other. And not comparison, but a real sense of compassion. A real sense that we've received that mercy of God and we draw our others to ourselves and to the church and to God through being that mercy for other people. St. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, and he loved the Philippians so much, of all, of, of all the churches that he writes to, that made their, his letters made their, their way into the New Testament, he has this, this incredible paternal affection for the Philippians. The letter, the letter begins, and, and it's just filled with the, the love that he has for them. And he's giving them paternal advice on what it means to live a pure religion in the world. And he says this in the second chapter. He said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any solace in love, any participation in the Spirit, any compassion and mercy, complete my joy. And it's, it's so paternal again, the way he says it. I, I, I rejoice in you, my Philippian children. I rejoice in you. Complete my joy, he says, by being of the same mind with the same love, united in heart and thinking one thing. And here's the key. Do nothing, he says, out of selfishness or vainglory. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking out not for his own interest, but for those of others. Brothers and sisters, that's pure and undefiled religion that I think of everybody else as more important to myself, that my religion is rooted in a humility that says, I offer to God my repentance. I ask for his mercy, but I become a sign of that mercy for other people as well. The prophet Micah says, you've been told what is good. You've been told what is required of God, only that you do justice, that you love the good, and that you walk humbly with your God. You see, that humility is the key to true religion. Jesus teaches us in the gospel, and Micah teaches us in his prophecies before Jesus, uh, 300 years before Jesus was born. It's the essence of pure religion. It benefits our soul. It connects us to God. It makes it possible for us to connect it to each other. As we come to this beautiful temple to pray, as we come here to do religion, it's important for us to understand that religion is not something that we're called to do. It's something we're called to be. It's not about external. It's about internal. The externals are fine. But if it's not rooted in true conversion, if it's not rooted in humility and the recognition of our need for God, it will not matter how many masses we go to, how many rosaries we say, how many communions we receive, how many confessions we go to, how many times we pray or how many candles we light. All those things are fine. Don't call the bishop and say, Father Bart said it's not important to go to church. I didn't say that. All those things are wonderful. But if they are not rooted in an internal humility, they will not profit us for connection with God and connection with each other. It's only when we've prayed in this way, when we've done religion in this way, that we, like the tax collector, can go away from this place justified.